It's good to have you with us today at the uh, Antioch campus of Blue Valley, and I hope you have enjoyed our experience of worship. Uh, really special. I attend the first service with my wife, and it was especially meaningful for us to watch the uh, the kids' ministry gather around our India team and pray for them. I hope you were moved by that as well. My favorite genre of movie is the Western. I love old Westerns like True Grit, Man Who Shot Liberty Balance. I love new Westerns like True Grit <laughs> and Open Range, if you've never seen that one. I like Nouveau Westerns. Set in modern times, like No Country for Old Men. I love space westerns. Uh, the Mandalorian is a space western. I will fight you about it. That's what it is. I love watching The Mandalorian. I love westerns. And if you, want, if you love westerns like me, you're probably thinking that our title today, Preparing to Meet God, is a riff off of an oft-used quote in the climactic scenes of many westerns. Scenes where the hero finally confronts the villain and announces to them that they are about to die, to meet God, to meet their maker. But that's not the origin of our title today. Actually, the Bible is the origin of our title today. In Amos 4.12, God confronts a breakaway republic from Israel headquartered in the ancient city of Samaria and tells them that he is about to come to them in judgment, and they are about to meet their end. And he does so with these words, prepare to meet your God, which would be an experience far more terrifying than any shootout with a bad guy. But because of the nature of God himself, a God who, as we have sung this morning, is transcendent and holy and whose very presence fills the entire universe, any encounter with Him in all of His glory under the very best of circumstances would be a terrifying experience. And our text today bears that out. So if you would please find Exodus 19 in your copy of God's Word. We are journeying through the book of Exodus here at Blue Valley um, through the first part of this year into this summer. And today we come to a wonderful chapter, Exodus 19. What we'll walk through together actually sets up one of the most famous, let's just call it the most famous passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments which comes in Exodus 20. Yet for as famous as that passage is, I think most of us tend to not know the setting in which those Ten Commandments were given. Most of us think that they were delivered in something of a private meeting between God and Moses. I think probably steered that way because too many of us have seen the 1956 movie, The Ten Commandments, and that's how it's portrayed there. But what we read here in Exodus 19 is God calling the people of Israel to prepare themselves to meet with Him, and they will hear the Ten Commandments spoken to Moses. Everyone will be present for this, and Exodus 19 is the buildup to preparation for that stupendous event. So we're going to walk through Exodus 19 uh, kind of verse by verse together for a little bit this morning, and then and then think about what we've read. So look at verse 1 of Exodus 19. It says, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out from the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Just remember, the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar. So what we're being told here is at the first of the third month, after three months, beginning of the fourth actually, they have reached 
the, the wilderness uh, of Sinai. So that's what we're being told here. And it says, they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. This is the mountain where the Ten Commandments are given. We actually don't know exactly which mountain it is that they arrived at, but tradition tells us it's Mount Sinai on the Sinai Peninsula. Let's keep reading verse 3. So they encamped there while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called it to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle wings, eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. That's meant to communicate an image of protection. An eagle is a symbol of protection. It is not meant to communicate your ridiculous Facebook memes and tell you that eagles carry their young on their wings. It's a simple matter of aerodynamics. That cannot happen. Uh, it, it, it's, it, they don't carry their young on their wings. My goodness, please. Uh, but it's meant to communicate protection. Let's keep reading. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people of Israel and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we'll just stop right there. So essentially, the people in that last statement agree to do all that the Lord is going to speak to them, and let's put it even more simply. They've not yet heard the Ten Commandments, but they agree before they hear the Ten Commandments to obey the Ten Commandments. They show up at the mountain saying, God, whatever it is that you're going to say to us, we will do. Now, the language of what we have just read is classic covenant language. And, and the covenant formula is, is simply this. If you do this, I'll do this. If you do this, I'll do this. And God is reminding them of the obvious in this passage, that He's redeemed them. And now He says to them, if you commit to obey Me, I will do for you two things in summary. First, He will make them His treasured possession. Though he is the Lord of all the earth and all the things in it and everyone in it, the words of the Lord himself and the verses we just read make that clear, Israel's going to have a special status before him. This is the escalation of his ultimate plan, first spoken to a man named Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. They were to be from him a special group of people that would climax in the most special group of redeemed people of all time, the church eventually culminating in us. But the second thing he will do is essentially make these people his spokespeople for the world. That's what is meant when he says that they are to be a kingdom of priests. His special group is not meant to be a holy huddle. It's just us and God and no one else. They are to carry out the work of making God's name known in all of the world for His glory. And God is saying to them, if they'll do these two things, if they will, if they will commit to obey Him, He will do these things that we have just discussed. And so Moses reports the commitment to the Lord. He says, they will do exactly what you have asked. And God, in turn, says this as we get to verse 10. He says to them, 
the Lord, says the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, I'll get there, I'm moving, I barely have my act together. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. So he's telling them, okay, if you're going to do this and, and, and therefore you're, you're wanting to meet with me, you need to prepare yourself to meet with me. You need to consecrate yourselves. Another way of thinking of consecrate um, is holy, but another way of thinking of something being made holy is to think of it as being removed from common usage, removed from common usage. Uh, everybody has dishes in their home, and my guess is that in your home, some of you have the dishes that you use every day. I mean, you don't care if it hits the floor and breaks and shatters. It's just something that you use every day. Then you have the special dishes, right? The special dishes that only come out if you're trying to impress company or only come out if you are, are having a special meal or, or celebrating a special occasion. Those are your special dishes, and then you have your common dishes. Those special dishes, that's what God is asking the people of Israel to make themselves, to separate themselves from common usage. So what does it mean to consecrate themselves? What are they going to have to do? Here's what we read, verse 12, "...and you shall set limits for all the people all around." saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to them, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. Now, there's a list of things that they needed to do to separate themselves from common usage that we read in those verses, and they may sound odd to our ears, so let's just put them in simple categories so that we can know exactly what it was they were being asked to do. First, they were being asked to be reverent. The instructions about them not setting foot on the mountain or coming too close are meant to communicate what an awesome thing it is to be in the presence of God. Second, they were to be clean. They were to be holy. The instructions about washing aren't because dirt or being dirty are inherently evil things. It just meant that they were to visibly communicate that we are not to come to God harboring filth and evil in our heart. And finally, they were to be focused. This is what we see in the instruction to abstain from sex. Again, not because sex properly enjoyed is evil. It's because this special experience of worship demanded their full and complete attention. So the people then ready themselves in these ways to meet God. They adopt a posture of reverence. They prepare their hearts, demonstrating that outwardly through their actions in cleaning, and then they fix their focus on God. And if there is any doubt at all, any doubt at all, that this is a special experience with God, it is erased in the next verses. Look at verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders, and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, 
and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the Lord answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Now, can you imagine that kind of scene? I want you to think with me about something that you may have encountered in life that had been so beautiful that it directed you immediately into the presence of God and it just kind of overwhelmed you. It doesn't have to be anything necessarily that is tied to a, an experience in church. I just want you to think about one of those times. For me, as long as I live, I will remember an evening just right before Christmas when I was a sophomore in college. Uh, my buddy Jeff and I had gone to visit my mom and dad, and we were in the pasture on my parents' land probably around midnight just being stupid college boys. We were sledding down a wooden, wooded hill in the dark, I mean, which is what you should do in the darkness, is go sledding so that you could get a concussion. That's what we were doing. There were several inches of snow on the ground, and the sky was as clear as you can possibly imagine in the near-zero cold. And it just so happened that night that there was a meteor shower. And for whatever reason, these two college boys just quit being stupid and fell silent looking up at the sky. And we countered, counted shooting star after shooting star after shooting Star And the only sound were, were the slow, deep breaths of an old black Angus cow in my dad's pasture that had come up to hang out with us. Just steam bellowing out its nostrils, frost covering her back. And we never said a word to one another. Jeff and I, not the cow. <laughs> because we both had a sense that God had done all this. The, the sky, the meteors, the snow, the cold, the old black cow. Our only job, the only thing we had to do there is just behold. Just behold what God was doing. And that was Israel's job, to behold the majesty of God. In the verses that remain in Exodus 19, God tells Moses to warn the people again not to come too close. So he goes down and does that. And then he also brings Aaron up with him, setting the scene for chapter 20 and the famous words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. And then the rest of the commandments. Exodus 19 is an awesome scene of people preparing to meet God, not in judgment, but as his special people. And it's easy for us to wish that we had been there for his arrival and the announcement of the Ten Commandments in person. But just before you start trying to book a trip to that, I'll just remind you, after the Ten Commandments are given, the people say to Moses, could you come here for a second? This scares us to death. Can you talk to him for us from here on out? And that's what happens. That's another sermon for another time. For now... I want us to just think about what we have in common with the people of Israel, preparing to meet God. Like Israel, we're God's special people, the capstone of God's redeeming work in the world. Like Israel, we are to be God's ambassadors 
to the world, telling others of his greatness and his salvation. But unlike Israel, we have Jesus, a Jesus whose payment for our sin makes it possible for us to approach God in a closeness and an intimacy that the people of Israel in Exodus 19 could not have imagined. Unlike Israel, we have no fear of the nearness of God or of meeting God, engaging Him and interacting with Him both personally and corporately when we gather in worship should be the most natural and normal thing in the world. But I am afraid His availability through Christ has made folks like us forget how awesome and other that He really is. And maybe even take the privilege of meeting with him in worship for granted. To prove it, I want you to think about what you did to prepare yourself for worship here today. I'm almost positive that the vast majority of us did almost nothing. Full transparency, I wonder if it weren't for my Sunday responsibilities if I might not be doing very much at all to prepare for the experience of worship either. Now let me ask you, what does that lack of preparation feel like in light of what we have just read this morning in Exodus 19? One of the most thought-provoking books I have ever read. It's out of print. You can still find used copies of it on Amazon is a book by Donald McCullough called The Trivialization of God, The Dangerous Illusion of a Manageable Deity. I bought it just for the title. In it, the author quotes perhaps the best question I have ever heard anyone ask about American worship. Here it is. Why do people in churches seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? That hurts a little bit. But it's accurate. I don't know if any of us come into this space with a sense of the holy awe of what is about to take place. Now, my point is not to shame or to guilt anyone. I may now be long past the days of having a preschooler in my home, but I've got grandkids, and they have given me a refresher course on what some of you have to go through in order to get your family to worship on Sundays. But what the younger of you may not realize is as as you get older, it takes the same amount of effort to get you ready that it takes the entire family to get ready for you right now. So we are all in the same boat. All of us bring our schedules and our joys and our sorrows and our distractions into this space on Sunday morning to meet with God with His people, alongside His people. And the end result of all of this, the hassle and the chaos of getting here and the distractions of life shrink the experience that worship is meant to provide. Rather than be big and transcendent, it becomes utilitarian. I hope I get something today that's going to help me get through the week. Or obligatory, this is what you do on Sundays. Or 
mindless. Where will we eat for lunch? And the thing is, I think we all want more from this time than that. So let's close by asking, what is required for us to meet our Maker, to, to meet our God in worship with God's people on Sunday mornings in order to gain the best possible blessing from the experience? Three things. First, like the Jews, you must commit. You and I must commit. Remember, before the Jews met with God, before they heard from Him, they said, we will do whatever it is that you say to us. Can you imagine coming to church having made that same commitment to God? God, I have no idea what the message is going to be about. I have no idea how I'm going to be challenged through the music. But whatever it is you say to me, I will do. For all of the grief we give these wandering and wayward Jews, I want you to think about the power of that commitment. That's a level of commitment that most of us never rise to. Perhaps, perhaps because we don't think of worship, as something that we offer to God, but instead as something we receive. I want us all to think about how we assess a worship experience. Our metric for a good time in worship is if the, the music or the sermon spoke to me. I want you to put your words and your assessment of whether a worship service is worth your time or not in the mouths of the Jewish people in verse 8. Through Moses, God says to us, God has let us know he's done all of this for you, and he's saying, I'll do more, but you've got to commit to do all I say. What if the people of Israel had said back to him, but will I get anything out of it? Will I be fed? It would be blasphemous. And yet that is how we approach worship, as a commodity to be used, not as an opportunity to commit and to offer ourselves to God. To prepare to meet our Maker in a Sunday morning worship experience with God's people and to have an experience that will rock us to our shoes, that's what we must do. We have to walk in committing beforehand to do what God says to us. This is not a negotiation. And then like Israel, we must prepare. I want you to remember people of Israel and the effort they were going to to bring out the good dishes in their lives, to adopt a reverent approach for what was about to happen, to clean themselves up and limit distractions. Well, let's, let's think about that and then let's just walk through a typical a typical Saturday in the final hours before church on Sunday morning for a Blue Valley family. Saturday, spent going hard all day. Families with kids are chasing them across ball fields and soccer fields and to band competitions, sometimes chasing them across the state, sometimes chasing them across the region. Empty nest and senior adults are using Saturday to get chores done uh, around the house or perhaps to connect with family and friends, and evening finally rolls around, and you're tired, but, you know, it's a good tired. You've had so much fun, and you really don't want it to end. And so you stay up late watching Netflix or a late ball game the Royals lost or Saturday Night Live, and then finally you drift off to sleep. 
You wake up the next morning late, but it's not too late. The kids are tired, so you let them sleep in while you scroll Facebook or Instagram or Twitter while your favorite indoctrination source, oops, I mean news channel, plays in the background, subconsciously stoking your fears or your anger or propping up your sense of self-righteousness. And before you know it, would you look at the time? We're going to have to hustle. We're going to make it to church. So you drag grumpy kids out of bed, and it's a dead run filled with tears and yelling and chaos and quickly eaten food. And look at that. You've made it to church for worship. Given your utter lack of preparation for the experience, how do you think it's going to go? Pastor and Author Dean and Sarah says that Sunday morning church is a Saturday night decision. And part of what he means is that the preparation for Sunday worship begins on Saturday. When we've done nothing to prepare our hearts for this experience, it's little wonder that we are dissatisfied and frequently very self-righteously critical of the experience. To meet your God on Sunday morning, you must prepare. And then finally, you must behold. Worship is ultimately beholding God. And beholding God provokes a lot of responses. I want you to listen to the words of one of the great worship passages in the Bible, Psalm 95. And I want to show you how worship has a range of expression. Look at verse 1 of 95. It'll be on your screens. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. That word joyful noise to us in English is kind of literally translated as a war hoop. It'd be yeehaw. I'm not kidding. It would be very much like that. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So let's worship God. Let's get loud. Let's get rowdy. Let's experience the upward uh, reaches of human emotion. But worship changes in verse 6. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand today if you hear his voice. Their worship is, is quiet and filled with holy awe. It's silent. So worship has a range of experience. It's that quiet reverent and it's yeehaw. What holds it all together? Look at verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. What holds it all together is a vision of a holy and transcendent God. It's a picture of a God. It is a vision of a God that is bigger than the world and bigger than our concerns. And when our mind is fixed on that, there are going to be times where we go, Yes! And then there are going to be times where we can't speak 
a vision of God does that for us. But it has to be cultivated. And again, I submit to you that most of us don't cultivate that vision of God in private time with God throughout the week and certainly in the lead-up to the most dynamic experience any of us should have any day of the week, Sunday morning worship with the people of God, singing praises to God and sitting before His Word. If we've not cultivated a vision of God that is bigger than anything else, then we will come to worship expecting God to give me something like he's a slot machine. And we'll miss out on what this experience could be. Three things that we must do to prepare to meet God. We must have a radical commitment to obey and a conscious effort to prepare and a goal of beholding the greatness of God in order for us to have an experience of worship in our time alone with the Lord and especially when we gather with His people on Sunday morning. So you think through what you need to do. You're smart people. This has not been a hard message to grasp. You're already thinking through your life and your routine and and getting here and what Saturday nights and what Sunday mornings look like, you know what you need to do. I don't need to, I don't need to spoon feed you. You'll figure it out. You'll figure out what you need to do. But I'd be remiss in closing without saying that on an even deeper level, the commitment that prepares us to meet God is the commitment to follow Jesus as Savior. That's... that's true of meeting God in worship, and it's especially true of meeting God in death. God has made it possible for us to meet Him in the most joyous way possible and to relish Him fully for eternity through Jesus. And if we don't know Him as Savior, then we aren't ready to meet God in a worship service, and we certainly aren't ready to meet God in death. And that's how I'd like to end this morning, by challenging those of us who have never given ourselves to Jesus to prepare to meet our Maker, to meet our God by surrendering our life to Him. So would you join me in prayer, please, with heads bowed and eyes closed? As you still yourself before the Lord, I want those of you who are followers of Jesus in this room to just reflect back on that moment in time when you gave your life to Jesus as Savior. Now, some of you are going to be like me. You're going to be able to remember a very specific time and a very specific event where there was a before and after moment. Some of you are going to remember a season where there's before that season and after that season. But I want you to think back to that time, day, season, when you came to know Jesus as your Savior and surrendered yourself to follow Him. And I want you to just ponder what it means for you to be moved from death to life, from being enslaved to sin to being set free in Christ Jesus. 
And whatever that response to that thought is, is worship. For some of you, it will just be a settled conviction. That's worship. For some of you, it will be your heart feeling like it's about to explode out of your chest. That's worship. For some of you, that's going to be just a, a stillness. That's worship. And ask God to cultivate that vision, that experience of him which has prompted that this morning, throughout this next week, and see if, making a conscious effort to prepare, if your Sunday morning worship experience is different next week because of it. But for those in this room that haven't been able to identify and look back on that event, that season, that time of life where you came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, I want you to know that we are here to help you today. If you've never given your life to Jesus as Savior, but you want to and you want to know what to do next, I'll be here, Pastor Jonathan will be here, elders will be here, your family and friends on the pew next to you are here to talk to you about what it means to surrender yourself to Jesus and the next steps you need to take. I'm going to pray for you right now that you'll do that.